Our second reading is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, the 24th chapter. And it's also printed in the middle of your bulletin insert, if you'd like to follow along. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only God. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Humanity. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away, so too will be the coming of the Son of Humanity. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one left, two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Messiah is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Christ is coming at an unexpected hour. Here ends our reading. So we have just listened to the readings that mark the first Sunday of the Christian calendar, the first week of Advent. How would these voices orient us? These people who have also lived through tumultuous times and fracturing of community. People who have known disillusionment and fatigue, injustice and threat of violence. How would they suggest the light gets in? Isaiah brings us to Mount Zion, to the presence of God, back to the place where we find instruction and guidance and hope for our deepest longings, where we are moved to transform our weapons into instruments that cultivate life. Isaiah was speaking to a people who were facing being overcome by a coalition of organized forces and to a leader who was coming up against a very real threat of death and in response to profound fear he offers them the image of Mount Zion. If ever there was an image today with a similar symbolic valence as Mount Zion might have been for the ancient people of Judah. I imagine it might be the buffalo for the people at Standing Rock. About a month ago, listening to reports out of Standing Rock of the water protectors protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline, I heard Dallas Goldtooth an organizer with the Indigenous Environmental Network, described what he called a really beautiful moment. Water protectors who had just endured being threatened by an intentionally set fire were surrounded by a wall of police backed by armored personnel carriers with Humvees up on a hill with snipers aimed at the people. The water protectors were being pushed back 
and batons were being swung, cracking over the heads and arms of the people. And then they looked to the east, and over the hills came a couple hundred buffalo stampeding toward the police line. And it was a beautiful moment, Dallas Goldtooth observed, because people saw this herd of buffalo and this cheer came up from the crowd because it was like their fight was being recognized by the four-legged nation of the bison, as if they were saying, we're with you. Behind the bison came horseback riders, young riders, men and women who were guiding these buffalo towards the police in an act of resistance and defiance. I recently learned that in honor of their ancestors who made the journey in 1890, having survived the massacre at Wounded Knee, young Lakota Sioux from reservations throughout South Dakota make an annual 300-mile ride on horseback from Standing Rock to Pine Ridge Reservation. For many of them, it is the first time they learn to ride, and they do it in very cold weather and with hunger pains throughout. The horses have heart, as they say. A horse might buck a young rider off many times, and that rider learns she is able to keep getting back on. There is a sense of community that is strengthened throughout this ride. Together, the riders learn to sing their prayer songs to meld their voices together. They learn the history of their people, the version told in old Western movies and the version told by their elders. They learn to carry their people with them. As one of the veteran writers has observed, the ride is a classroom for survival. Knowing that it was a group of young writers who gathered the buffalo and guided them toward the police line makes it all the more incredible. It is as if the youth were offering back to their people the teachings, the way to survival, the hope they were given, and that they believe in somewhere deep within. In gathering the buffalo, they carried within them the way the light gets in. As we make our annual journey towards Bethlehem, some of our deepest dreams and longings will return within us once more. Perhaps, like me, it will happen for you as you hear music that reminds you of your childhood. As I hear John Denver, James Taylor, or Elton John's Tiny Dancer playing, I am transported to the crunch of snow beneath the wheels of the car on a Colorado mountain road, to scarves, crisp air, and beautiful bouncing light, to socks on wooden floors and fireplaces going. I am transported to a sense of all being right with the world, 
the warmth of family and friends to a place of safety and joy. Now, whether I would actually experience that perfect wonder if I went home is another story. And there are songs that also remind me of dreams that didn't come true and of peace that has still yet to come. Writing about the nostalgia and the dream of Christmas, as well as the disillusionment and sadness, Stacy Simpson Duke suggests that the reason the cultural messages of the season are so powerful is because our human yearning is so real and so profound. She suggests that part of our longing is God, something Isaiah puts his finger on when he brings us back to that mountain. For her, Isaiah is offering a message that one day we can, quote, quit getting on by scraps and remembrance of spiritual experiences. God's presence will be made manifest. We will press toward God's house together and be taught and changed. This picture of unity, says Duke, this picture of justice, of shared openness to the divine way, and of peace, speaks to some of our deepest hopes. When we see the joyful images of families and yuletide gatherings, she says maybe part of what catches in us is the desire for harmony across many divisions. Maybe our nostalgia for our childhood wonder at Christmas taps into our desire to believe in things that seem impossible, like peace on earth and goodwill for all. When we might otherwise live numb, deadened, so that we might live with our disillusionment, we are given this season that would awaken our deepest hope that has been gestating in us since our childhood. Hope that still resides somewhere deep within us and that can move us to respond. While the people in our reading from Matthew find themselves in the midst of uncertainty about the future, there is a sense that there is still work to be done now. Mark Yours notes that Jesus directs the people to the field, the mill, the daily grind, the ordinary places of human endeavor where life is lived. Jesus, throughout his life, is always gathering the people, helping them listen to the light that stays alive within them, the light that causes them to come, listen, search out, that causes them to be drawn to the mountain. We are invited to live awake to the light born within and among us, to trust it. There is power living awake to that hope. As we begin this new year, this Advent season, we are invited to believe once more in our shared longing for justice and unity for an openness to the divine way, for the presence of God with us. We are invited to believe we can take our place on the horse or the donkey, as it were, 
though it may have given us a kick to the ribs before, and make the journey alongside our sisters and brothers. Come, let us walk in the light of God. Amen.